The passage of scripture we will be looking at this morning is found in the second chapter of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 2. I'll be reading the first seven verses and then skipping down to verse 21. Actually, the bulletin has verse 22, but I made a last-minute change. I'll actually pick up the reading in verse 21 and read through verse 35. Please give your attention to God's holy and errant word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. And while, we were there, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Well, as I think back upon the past year, I think about how my life continues to change. I think about the fact that last July, as of last July, I had one grandchild and was still trying to cope with bearing that title of granddad. It was a title that I didn't wear very comfortably. And matter of fact, I had lobbied my family to be called granddan instead of granddad, but that didn't fly. But now, that was July, and July I had one grandchild, but now I have four, and one who is still unborn, but will be joining us in March. 
Those of you that have been through that transition in life and know that experience of becoming a grandparent, you know what a strange and wonderful stage of life it is as you stop raising your own children and then watching them have children and begin to raise their own children. And I'm sure many of you, like me, as experienced parents, would like very much, wish desperately, that you could somehow prepare them for all the radical changes that are going to come into their lives as they begin to raise children. No matter how much you may tell them about it, they really won't understand until they begin to experience it themselves. A couple of months ago, when I was sitting in the hospital with my daughter, my youngest daughter, as she was in labor, preparing to deliver her first child, I remember having to fight the urge to say to her as I watched her there, you're being way too calm about this. You have no idea how big the changes are that are coming upon your life. Well, as we've been studying through these first two chapters of the book of Luke during the Advent season, we've been observing Mary as she has been going through just the process of understanding this bombshell that the angel laid on her when the angel said to her that she, a poor virgin teenage girl, was going, she was going to have the Holy Spirit come upon her and she would miraculously conceive a child in her womb who would be known eventually as the Son of the Most High, the Messianic King who would reign forever over all. I kind of have a similar reaction to her as I did to my youngest daughter when I read Mary's response in chapter 1, verse 38, where after the angel told her this, and we don't know what was going on inside of her at that moment, but what she said was, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And again, I want to scream out, You are being way too calm about this, Mary. You have no idea, no idea about the changes that are coming upon your life and upon the world as a result of the birth of your firstborn. But we've seen how the Lord has so gently and graciously helped Mary process all this by giving her multiple confirmations of what he was doing in her life and the calling that he had placed upon her. We saw how even the unborn John the Baptist in the womb of his mother Elizabeth leapt for joy when Mary came to meet Elizabeth with Jesus in her womb. We heard the words of Elizabeth as she spoke, guided by the Holy Spirit, to confirm this incredible calling that God had placed upon Mary. We learn in Matthew chapter 1 that God came to Joseph, Joseph to give him a dream, to assure him that this was what Mary had told him it was, a miracle of the Holy Spirit to send the Son of God to be among us. And even here in chapter 2, there's a portion we didn't read where the shepherds come to Mary and Joseph to bring confirmation that the angels had told them that her baby was Savior Christ the Lord. So here, as we move to this later portion in chapter 2, we see that Mary and Joseph take the infant Jesus to the temple for the first time. And what's amazing to me is that how God so gently and lovingly continues to confirm his love for Mary and her calling to strengthen her faith as she continues to work through it all. 
But this time, when the, when the confirmation is given, what you notice is there's an ominous warning that's given along with it, where Mary is told that a sword will pierce her own soul. Some kind of deep spiritual pain would come upon her that would be far worse than the pain of being run through with a sword. More on that in a little bit. Let's first of all look at the context here. What's going on in this portion, beginning in verse 21 and 22? What we see here is that Mary and Joseph were godly parents, good covenant parents who kept the law of God. You know, when it comes to parenting, there's so much that you have to learn, that you have to learn by trial and error, that you, so much wisdom you need. But Mary and Joseph give us such a great example here. It says five times in chapter 2 that they did for the infant Jesus according to the law of God. What an example for us as parents. Just make sure we know and understand the law of God and apply it to our children as best we can. God will bless that. And that's what they're doing here. They're being good covenant parents. Verse 21, it says they had him circumcised on the eighth day according to the law. Of course, circumcision was the sign and seal of the old covenant. It marked the child as belonging to God in a special way. That This child was a part of the covenant community. And even the sign itself represented the circumcision of the heart, which would be the saving work that the Holy Spirit had to do in this child for this child to ever be saved. It didn't guarantee that the child would be saved, but it marked that child as having all the privileges and responsibilities of belonging to God's church of the Old Testament, the Old Testament covenant community. And then in verse 22, they come to the temple a few weeks later, in order to perform two more important rituals from the Old Covenant that were according to God's law. The first one was the presentation of Jesus. And this goes back to the time of the Exodus, the defining deliverance of Old Testament Israel. You remember how Pharaoh refused to let God's people go. He kept them under oppression and slavery and mistreatment and would not let them go, even when God sent these terrible plagues as warnings and judgments against him, to the point where finally God broke Pharaoh's will by sending the angel of death to kill all the firstborns in Egypt. And remember how God taught his people a lesson in sovereign grace by having them kill a perfect lamb and take the blood of that lamb and display it over the doors of their house, houses. So that when the angel of death came through Egypt, those who had faith in God's promise and put their trust in the blood of a sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice, that their firstborn would be spared. What a, what a powerful message to the Israelites to say, your firstborn is just as deserving of death as the Egyptian firstborn. But if you trust in my promise of deliverance, the shed blood of a sacrifice, you will be passed over. You will be delivered. And that's what this presentation ceremony is all about. That from that time on, God said to the people of Israel, your firstborn children belong to me in a special way. And so if you were of the tribe of Levi, and that meant that your firstborn son would go to the temple to serve in the temple the rest of his life. But if, you're first, you were born, if you were part of another tribe of Israel and your firstborn did not have to serve in the temple, 
but you could buy them back, so to speak. You could redeem them. You pay the redemption price of five shekels, and then you would get the privilege of raising this child who belongs in a special way to the Lord. You'd be able to raise him at home. And that's what's going on here. This is the presentation of Jesus. He was of the tribe of Judah, not of, the Le- of Levi. The second ritual that's going on here is the purification of Mary. According to the law, again, when a Jewish mother gave birth to a boy, she was therefore then unclean for 40 days after the delivery. And she was then restored to the full spiritual and social life of Israel by coming to the temple to be cleansed. And part of that cleansing was to offer a year-old lamb as a sacrifice and also either a pigeon or a dove. And you'll notice in the text here, it says that Joseph and Mary offered two pigeons or two doves. What that meant was that they were poor because that was the provision in the law for the poor is that if you were poor, you didn't have to offer a lamb. You could actually offer two of the birds instead. Think about it. Jesus was circumcised. They paid the redemption price for him. And his mother had to go through a ceremonial cleansing. All these things were according to the law, but all of them were in the law given to Moses because we are all conceived and born as sinners. It's because of sin in the life of, in the, in the, in the very nature of the child, that we were born dead in trespasses, is the reason that Old Testament children had to be circumcised and go, go through the presentation process and have their mothers cleansed is because of sin, and yet Jesus was sinless. What that reminds me of is how, remember when Jesus started his public ministry, he went to John the Baptist to be baptized. And John said to him, Jesus, what are you doing? You're sinless. You're the Messiah. You don't need to be baptized. This is, not, this is inappropriate. You remember how Jesus responded. He said, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus went to the nth degree to fulfill every law. He was perfect in his obedience, even in obedience to ceremonial laws that pointed toward his ultimate atoning work. He identified with us. As Paul says in Galatians 4, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. He was our covenant representative who fully represented us before God and kept every law on our behalf, even the ones that resulted from the fall into sin. So here we are at the presentation and cleansing ceremony at the temple, and God provides another confirmation to Mary, a confirmation to her faith. And it comes through the mouth and through the voice of an elderly man named Simeon. Now, we don't know for sure he was elderly. That's kind of an implication from th- several things he says, one thing in particular. But he probably was a very old man, very much on the door of death himself. All we really know about Simeon is what it says here, is that he was righteous and devout. He was trusting in the Lord and living according to God's law. Secondly, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. I love that phrase. That's a description of the life of Simeon. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was trusting in the promise of a Messiah. He was trusting in God's deliverance. He lived a life that characterized by that. Oh, that we might hear somebody describe us 
as waiting for the consolation of God's people, that that would be a description of our lives. What a beautiful picture we have of the faithful remnant among Israel here in these first couple chapters of Luke. When you think of Zechariah the priest, when you think of Elizabeth his wife, you think of Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna, they were all living by the promise of grace and deliverance through the Messiah, even in those dark days. And the other thing it tells us about Simeon, the faithful one, is that the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it means this in kind of the Old Testament sense, an extraordinary working of the Holy Spirit in him in the sense that he knew that he would not die. The Spirit told him somehow that he would not die until he laid eyes on the Messiah, the one who would bring about the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And somehow, that day, as he stood there worshiping at the temple, somehow the Holy Spirit indicated to him that that tiny infant in the arms of Joseph and Mary was that Messiah. He was the one. And so Simeon comes to Joseph and Mary, and he gives this prophecy, which is such a powerful confirmation and revelation of what Jesus had come to do, both about his identity and about his mission. And in this prophecy, we see both the joy and the pain that Christ brings into the life of those who are waiting for the consolation promised by God. First of all, what Simeon tells us is that in Jesus, we see the one true God over all people. In Jesus, we see the one true God over all people. Look at verses 30 through 32. Simeon says to the Lord, My eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now again, just as we said about Mary and Elizabeth and all these other faithful saints, they knew the Old Testament scriptures. When they prayed, they prayed in the language of the Old Testament. And the phrases that Simeon uses, you have to understand the Old Testament to understand what he's really saying, the depth and fullness of what he's saying. When he talks about the light of the Gentiles and the glory of Israel, he's talking about Yahweh, about God himself. God in the Old Testament scriptures is the light to the Gentiles. God is the glory of Israel. And so in some probably limited but sufficient way, he's looking at this child and saying, God has visited us. God has come to dwell among us. The light of the Gentiles and the glory of God is with us. Emmanuel, God with us. John uses this same language over in his, the first chapter of his gospel, beginning in verse 9 where he says, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Simeon somehow understood this by the leading of the Spirit, that the light and the glory was among us. Jesus is the revelation of who God is. We know God because we see God in Jesus himself. 
as Jesus would later say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. That's great news to those of us who believe in him. But it's not consolation for anyone else. I was reminded that this week, one of the big controversies in the news media this week was about uh, Christian College, Wheaton College near Chicago. I'm sure most of you heard the story. The, one of the female um, political science professors there, in an effort to express concern and compassion for Muslims who are being treated badly because of the actions of radical Muslims, she made a commitment, public commitment, to wear a head covering during the Christmas season. And she gave, through social media, she gave her reasons as being that she, didn't, she wanted to be in solidarity with Muslims. And then she goes on to say that she believed that the Muslims were like Christians, people of the book, and lest there be any doubt what she meant by that, she said, we worship the same God. Now, the media made it out, at first at least, as though she was disciplined and suspended from her teaching at Wheaton College because she was wearing a head covering. That's not why they did it. The reason they suspended her was because of the theological reasons for wearing her head covering, her public statements that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. The true God, the God of the universe, the one who created all things, the one who is judge of all people, is the God that we see in Jesus Christ. One of the student protesters who was supporting the professor, one of the students at Wheaton who was supporting this professor who was suspended, made this comment to the media. He or she said, we really should be focused on our love and support for Muslims and shouldn't let our theological clarity shut that out. In other words, don't let our theology affect how we love Muslims. I agree, we need to love Muslims. We need to serve them. We need to do all that we can to reach out to them and care for them and treat them with honor and respect as, as sinners made in the image of God just like we are. But we are not loving Muslims when we throw our theology out the window and say that they're worshiping the same God that we are. The theological clarities, and I don't know what the student meant by that, but I assume that the theological clarities that they want to leave on the shelf while we go out and reach out to Muslims are things like the Trinity and the deity of Christ and the blood atonement, substitutionary atonement, the resurrection of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the literal bodily return of Christ and justification by faith alone. Those are the theologies that we have to leave on the shelf to go and just accept Muslims as they are and say they're worshiping the same God that we are. The way to love Muslims is to tell them about the real Jesus, not the one they've been taught. The only God who exists is the God who reveals himself in Jesus, God, fully man, fully God, who's come to dwell among us. That's what Simeon saw. That's what Simeon testified to by the Spirit of God. The second thing that Simeon says is that in Jesus we see our destiny, the destiny of all mankind. We see it in Jesus. Verses 34 and 35, Simeon gives this dark prophecy. He says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. 
This child, this Messiah, was appointed by who? By God the Father. He was sent on a mission by God the Father to cause the fall and the rising of many. This message had to be hard for Mary to hear. Could you imagine being the mother, being told that your precious firstborn son was going to be the great divider of all mankind? That many would love and serve him and even worship him, but many more would reject him and hate him and stand opposed to him and fall. But of course, this wasn't entirely new information for Mary, was it? She had indicated as much, at least in a vague sense, back in chapter 1, when we had her magnificat, her prayer, her praise, and she said this, He, God the Father, has shown his strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Jesus was never, ever vague about this in his own public ministry. From the very beginning, Christ made it clear to everyone who was in all willing to listen to him, to hear him, he said, I'm going to divide you. Some are going to be drawn to me, some are going to be driven away. Over in chapter 3 of John, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But then he goes on to say, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus said, I have come as the light of Yahweh himself. And this light is going to repel most people, but it's going to draw some who are chosen by God's sovereign grace. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus said, do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. And he was not contradicting what the angels said to the shepherds. The angels said he's come to bring peace on earth, but not the kind of peace that his generation was looking for the kind of eternal peace that only his death and resurrection, his ascension, and then his eventual return would bring about the complete work of redemption. He said that that division, he goes on to say in that same passage, this division would be between father and son, between mother and daughter. Every single person, every part of mankind is divided over who Jesus Christ is. As in the words of Peter, as he quoted that Psalm 118 that we read together earlier, he says, Jesus is the stone that the builder reject, builders rejected that has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. As our culture gets darker and darker, we're seeing this line of divide between all human beings much more clearly than we used to. He is still the great divider. I remember a few years ago reading an article in the Atlantic Monthly Magazine. The title of the article caught my attention. It said, the 15 most divisive athletes in recent history. The 15 most divisive athletes in recent history. And on that list of 15, there were names that I think we would all agree with. Names like Barry Bonds and O.J. Simpson and Dennis Rodman and Pete Rose. 
the name that caught my attention was Tim Tebow. And what's amazing about the case of Tim Tebow is that by all accounts, I don't care what your religion is, what your philosophy is, everybody that's ever worked with Tim Tebow has only given glowing reports of what a great guy he is, how nice he is, how respectful he is, how responsible he is, and yet go on social media and look for opinions about Tim Tebow. Vast majority of the American sports public hates the guy. And it's because he's very bold about his faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only reason I can come up with for why he's hated so much, is that he is very bold in his commitment and his faith in Jesus Christ. And it's, it's always convicting to me when I read those things, is that maybe the reason I'm not hated more than I am is that I'm not as bold as I should be about my faith in Christ and my commitment to him. He is the great divider of all mankind, and Simeon prophesied it. Which brings me to the third truth that Simeon brought out, is that in Jesus we see the cost of our sin. Simeon ends his prophecy by giving Mary a glimpse of the future, and it's scary. He says to her, a sword will pierce through your own soul as a result of the world's rejection of Christ. A sword would pierce her soul. You know, when he says a sword will pierce your soul, he's communicating to her that the pain that the presence of Christ in her life was going to bring into her life was going to be far greater than being run through with a sword. It was going to be a piercing of the soul, not the body. Deep emotional, spiritual pain. And this is what she went through as she watched her firstborn, her beloved son, this perfect Jesus, suffer and die at the hands of of his enemies, and her religious and political leaders. She felt the pain, the piercing of her soul when she watched him being denied and betrayed by his friends and falsely accused. She felt the piercing of her soul when she watched him being flogged within an inch of his life. She felt the piercing of her soul when she watched him being crucified on the cross and even far more disturbing to her, to hear him cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The sword pierced her soul as she watched his lifeless body laid in the tomb. All this, any mother among us knows that this would be excruciating for any mother to go through. But can you imagine the deep emotional spiritual pain of her coming to realize that he suffered this way because of her sin? It's because she had sinned so much that he had to suffer this way, even bearing the forsakenness by God the Father. It's what Simeon meant when he looked at the infant Jesus and said, my eyes have seen your salvation. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so that's why Simeon said that his rising from the dead is what is the cause of the rising of many. In his resurrection, we overcome sin and death. Kind of a dark message for a Christmas message. 
we tend to want to only think about happy thoughts and happy things during the Christmas season. But the message of Christmas is about the mission of Christ, about the difference that Christ would make having come into the world, a mission that was full of rejection and pain. And I know for a fact that Mary had little idea about the joys and pains that would come into her life through the birth of her firstborn son. But the example that Mary is to me is that she put her faith in God and in his promises, in these confirmations that, she had, that he had given to her. I often tell parents when they're preparing for their firstborn children that, you know, I, I want to be a realist, but I want to say to them, you know, this child is going to bring much hassle and hardship and heartache into your life. But the joy and fulfillment that this child will bring into your life, even though quantity-wise will be far less, you're going to spend a lot more time in hassle and hardship and heartache than you do in joy and celebration raising your children, I guarantee it. But the joy and the satisfaction that your children bring into your life in terms of quality far outweighs all the hardship and hassle and heartache. Matter of fact, those are quickly forgotten. But think about the difference of seeing Jesus for who he is and receiving him into your life as Lord and Savior. Think about the difference with him. Yes, it will bring much hassle and hardship and heartache into your life to receive Jesus, to trust in him. It will. I guarantee it. He guaranteed it. But not only will all of the joys and satisfactions of knowing and following him far outweigh the hassles and the hardships and the heartaches. But he is so great that he has promised us that he is going to use the hassles and the hardships and the heartaches for our good. He works everything together for our good so that even the things that we go through in life that are difficult are actually gifts from him that bring us great blessing and joy and satisfaction. Only Jesus can do that for you. Those who reject Jesus choose a temporary joy and are destined for eternal pain in body and soul. But those who trust in Jesus, see him for who he is and put their trust in him, have temporary pain but eternal joy and satisfaction. That's what Christmas is all about. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for Mary. She is such an encouragement and an example to us. She's not the source of your grace, but she is an example of your grace at work in sinners like, like us. Thank you for her faith. Thank you that you have given us that same gift of faith. May it be strengthened by the many confirmations you give us in your word and in our walk with Christ. And may we give glory to him, even as we walk in the midst of his enemies. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.